We are picking back up on the Gospel of Mark. We took a little break to go through Esther, and now we're picking it back up in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. He was not a disciple of Jesus when Jesus had his earthly ministry, but he was mentored by Peter in Rome, which is the source material for John Mark. Thus, you'll notice that a lot of the events in John Mark, uh, in John Mark's Gospel, uh, they appear to have that feel of first-hand account because they did have a first-hand account in Peter. The main themes of Mark, as you may remember, are three of them. One, Jesus is the suffering servant. Mark covers this exhaustively. He goes into much detail about the suffering of Christ with the obvious climax of that being the death on the cross as a propitiation for sin. Secondly, Jesus is the king of this world. Mark over and over again clearly shows that Jesus is Messiah and king of the world and thus he has authority over all. Finally, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Jesus being the Son of God has many very important implications in the Gospel gospel of Mark. Um, The most important being that if he is the Son of God, that means he is also God, part of the Trinity, the Godhead. Mark is broken up into three acts. So, uh, as you notice, we are preaching it in three sections. The first act, ending actually in our chapter today, um, which, by the way, was supposed to be over the winter, but we got pushed back. Um, it ends with the confession of his disciples that he is the Christ, and that is his public ministry, chapters 1 through 8, especially in Galilee, his public ministry, and it actually ends in this chapter today. Uh, Act 2, which we'll start next week, is primarily in Mark 9 through 13, and it is Jesus' private ministry to his followers and his road towards the cross. And then finally, Act 3, which we'll actually be covering a little later after another small break, is Mark 14 through 16, which is the passion of the Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus our Savior. But today we are covering the entire 8th chapter of Mark, and there is a lot in the entire 8th chapter of Mark. I decided this week that this could easily have been seven sermons with no problems, Um, so I'm going to try to cover just the big points. I'm going to gloss over some of the details. I'll try not to leave out anything essential, Uh, and Lord willing, this will be fruitful. Today we will find that um, Jesus has great compassion, and thus our God has great compassion. We will see Jesus dealing with spiritual blindness and physical blindness. We will see that Jesus is Messiah, uh, and that he must suffer and become a ransom for many. And finally, we will see that the ransomed, those that he died for, must deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow after Christ. But let's start with prayer. Lord, Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for today. Thank you for your goodness, for your uh, provisions, Lord. We have so much. We are filthy rich, Lord. Uh, We have food. We have clothing. We have homes. We have vehicles. We have family. Um, Lord, we have so much. We have an abundance. I just pray that you would help us to fully understand uh, that you provide all, Lord, and that In our abundance, we should be giving back to you. Um, Lord, help us not to be clouded and blinded by all the things we have. Um, Help us, Lord, to be willing to die for your gospel 
Um, help us to understand that all of this is going to burn, that it does not matter, Lord, um, that what matters is seeking your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Mark 8, 1 through 9, the compassion of Jesus. I will read the text quickly. I am reading in the ESV. Mark 8, 1 through 9. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Jesus had been ministering to the Gentiles for several weeks. Starting in chapter 7, about verse 24, Jesus led his disciples north of Israel and into Tyre and Sidon. And now he's actually looped around, and now he's in the Decapolis area that's just east of Galilee. He's still in Gentile territory. So that means this crowd was probably Gentiles. So he's right on the Sea of Galilee, but he's not actually on the Israel side of the Sea of Galilee. And now we find in Mark chapter 8 that this crowd has come and gathered. This is a crowd that um, we find in other versions, uh, I think in Matthew, that uh, he had just healed a lot of them. So they came out for healing. And Jesus, seeing that the people gathered were hungry, says, I have compassion. Now, this simple statement might not seem astonishing. Easily overlooked, Jesus has compassion. It's Jesus. Of course he has compassion. This is the only time in all four Gospels that Jesus uses these words. There are multiple times in the Gospels where the author says Jesus had compassion. So they they are observing him, they see his actions, and they see he's had compassion. But this is the only time that in the first person Jesus says, I have compassion. And this is incredibly important. Jesus, by making this simple statement, has clearly, irrevocably said, one of the main attributes of God, of me, is compassion. I have compassion. And I'll explain why why I think that. Now, of all of the religions of the world, all of the false gods created by man, created by demons, created by Satan, Christianity stands out. Because it is the only one in which we find a God that clearly, distinctly has compassion over and over and over again for humanity and for humanity's simple needs. Because this compassion is not limited to extreme situations. Jesus' compassion, obvious, when he heals, he brings people back to the life at times. He casts out demons. He, like here, feeds thousands and thousands. But the point here is that these people are not starving. This is not an extreme situation. They had not eaten for three days. Humans can go a lot longer than three days without food. 
But Jesus, seeing this crowd of people, of Gentiles, who came out to follow him for three days, has compassion on their simple human hunger. Our God is compassionate. He is a loving Father. And we are his children. And who of you, if your son asked you for food, would give him a snake? So it is with God, but with perfection. Our God is compassionate. So Jesus tells his disciples that he wants to feed all these people. Now, as a reminder, just like in the feeding of the 5,000, which was several weeks before, it actually says 4,000 men, and in the other one, 5,000 men. This is 4,000 men and probably their families. That means there could be 15,000 people here. 15,000 people. And the disciples' response is simply, we have no means to feed this number of people. It's impossible. We're in the desert. Now, just like in the other account, um, Jesus has to provide. Um, remember that this is mostly Gentiles. Now, the, with that in mind, the disciples aren't asking Jesus, probably, how is this possible? They know it's possible. Just a few weeks before, Jesus fed a multitude of Jews. So why them asking, how can one provide, what they probably mean is, we know you can, but we can't, so you're going to have to, but will you? Because this is unclean people. This is Gentiles. These aren't Jews. The religious leaders at that time wouldn't even have a meal with a Gentile. And now Jesus is telling his disciples to feed 15,000 of them. Now, will he feed 15,000 Gentiles? Of course. So, Jesus provides the food. He took seven loaves and a few small fish and feeds 15,000 people. This is simply, purely, a miracle of creation. We know this is incredible. We know these stories. But do we consider the power? Jesus made bread out of nothing. It was grain that had never been picked. It had never existed. It had never grown. It was never baked. Poof, bread. Fish out of nothing. Fish that had never been born, never grew, never were caught, never were killed. Fish, poof, ready to eat out of nothing. It's incredible. This is creation. This is the power, the staggering power of God and Genesis 1 to feed some hungry people. What is the message here? The divine compassion of our God and His salvation is for everyone. He cares for our simple needs and our big needs, like salvation. And it's for everyone. It's for the Jews and it's for the Gentiles. His desire to provide, to meet the needs for the Jews, was identical for his desire to provide the needs of the Gentiles. This is very important. It seems that at this point his disciples don't fully get this, and we'll see that in Acts, obviously. It took a lot for them to be convinced to spread the good news to Gentiles. But Jesus is trying to make a point. We spread our salvation also to the Gentiles. And this is important for us, because this is us. 
I don't think we have a single person in here who is bloodline Jewish. So that's every single one of us in here is a Gentile who has been brought into the family of God. Next. <clears throat> Mark eight ten through 26. Next we're going to see Jesus and his disciples re-enter Galilee. This has ended Jesus' ministry to those Gentile regions that are around Israel. He's going to re-enter Galilee, the nation of Israel. Now this next section of Mark 8, and again it's verses 10 through 26, Jesus is dealing with blindness, spiritual and physical. Now we know that the human condition is spiritual blindness. You are born in the dark. This is universally true for all of humanity. We are profoundly and totally spiritually blind, pitch black from birth. That is our state at birth. And every single religion in the world claims to know the way to spiritual sight. And every single one of them is lying to you, except Christ-focused Christianity. Christ is many times said to be the light in the darkness, over and over and over again. Just a few, John 1, 4 through 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 8 Verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there are two kinds of spiritual blindness that we're going to see today. One is permanent spiritual blindness. And we're going to see that in just a moment with the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel who come out against Christ. This is willful hardening of your heart. This is someone who has seen the truth, stared it in the face, and said, I reject it as truth. Second, we will see temporary spiritual blindness of Jesus' own disciples. Um, this is born from ignorance of the truth and from being distracted from the truth. But it is curable by teaching and rebuke, which we will also see. So I'll read the text quickly for spiritual permanent blindness. In verses 10 through 13. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha. Delmanutha. Uh, that's right around Capernaum, for those who care. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus had literally just stepped foot on Jewish land again after weeks or possibly months in the Gentile lands. And the Pharisees and Sadducees come right out to argue with him. Now, in our text, only the Pharisees are mentioned. In the same uh, events in Matthew, the Sadducees are noted to also be with them. And that's important. That's what we're seeing here are the extremes of the religious leaders. The Pharisees are the hardcore legalist right wings. The Sadducees are the most liberal left wings you could find. And they are coming together. These are mortal enemies, by the way, coming together to reject publicly, to attempt to shame, and eventually kill Jesus Christ. These men did not come out to Jesus for discussion. 
They did not come out for teaching. They did not come out honestly questioning to discover whether he was the Messiah. They came out for one purpose, to fight him, to publicly shame him, to denounce him, and to try to trick him into proving he was not God. And this is very evident by the text. They came and argued and they asked for a sign from heaven to prove that he was from God. Now let's remember Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader of the Pharisees in the Galilean region. That means this region he's in right now. He was a leader of the Pharisees. And in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That was two years ago from this point. Two years ago. Six months into his ministry, a leader of these men came to him and said, the signs you're doing right now prove you are from God. Two years later, hundreds, thousands of miracles later, and these men are coming out to Jesus saying, prove you're God. Thousands of miracles. He has raised people from the dead. And they're coming out saying, prove it. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. They loved the darkness. Now this is an important point. Their question is not simply asking for a miracle. They're saying specifically, show us a sign from heaven. There was a superstition at that time that demons could perform signs or miracles of the earth and that only God could perform signs or miracles of heaven. Um, This is very short-sighted. When they said heaven, they meant literally the sky. They didn't mean heavenly miracles. They meant something in the air. So this is obviously ridiculous. So they weren't asking him to heal someone or create food or turn water into wine or anything like that. They want him to do something in the sky, stop the sun, start and stop a storm, rearrange the constellations. These people honestly believed that Jesus was a charlatan. They were staring the light in the face and said, no, I reject you. You are a charlatan. So what they expected him to do was either to refuse and make an excuse so that they could go to the people and say, look, he's a charlatan. Or for him to say, okay, to try it, to fail, and even better. And Jesus' response was very simple to these men who loved the darkness. He sighed deeply in his soul. The Greek here is deeply grieved, hurt in his soul. He is deeply grieved by their hardness of heart. These are the religious leaders of the region of Galilee. He had spent almost his entire time ministering to these people. They had seen miracle after miracle. They had heard his teaching. They had seen the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers cleansed. And yet they rejected him. If anyone should have recognized the Messiah, it was these men who knew the scripture and had seen the Messiah walking day after day after day. The ignorant, the ignorant cannot harden their hearts against the truth. It requires hearing and understanding the truth to harden against it. And that's exactly what these men had done. They had heard it. 
They had understood it. They had stared at the light and they said, no, I love the darkness. So Jesus said, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And the text says he left them. He got in the boat and he went to the other side. This is monumental. This is Jesus ending his public ministry in Galilee. Jesus' statement that there will be no sign for this generation is total. These people will never experience his miracles and his grace again. They have resigned themselves to rejecting the light, to wallowing in their blindness happily, and Jesus abandons them to it. They have rejected him over and over, and he says, Enough! I'm leaving. And he never shows the miracles again. The Galilean region will never see public preaching again. They are volitionally and permanently spiritually blind. These are those who love their religious acts more than they love the truth. They would rather continue in richness of life and power over others than face truth and true Messiah. They don't want change, even if that change comes from God. And Jesus has abandoned them to their lives, to their lies. This is very important. From now on, in the Gospel of Mark, you will notice he will no longer speak to the religious leaders with invitation. He only speaks to them with condemnation. He will no longer focus on those who have rejected him, including the Jewish population that follows these leaders. Instead, from now on, you will notice he focuses most of his attention on those who have already chosen to follow him. Um, <clears throat> especially the twelve. From this point on, he focuses on preparing them for what is to come, rather than inviting those who have continued to reject him. But, directly following this scene, we find the disciples themselves are blind to much of what Jesus is saying. Mark eight fourteen through 21, temporary spiritual blindness. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. <clears throat> Remember, they had just had this moment with the Pharisees where they're all there and Jesus just turns around and walks away. So all the disciples are, oh, I guess we're going. So they forgot to grab food. Not too surprising. <clears throat> and they had only one loaf in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Are you just as bad as these guys that we just left? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? They forgot to bring food. So with food on their minds, Jesus starts to teach them. They had just witnessed this really important event. Jesus turned his back on a group of people for the first time abandoning them to their lies. So you would expect the disciples to have questions, to have some concerns, to want to know exactly what's going on. <clears throat> that they would be listening intently to whatever their teacher was going to say. 
And what he's saying is he's, he's cautioning them about this danger of influences around them. They have to continue to live in this world. And Jesus uses the picture of leaven to describe these dangerous influences. Leaven spreads, it fills, it permeates. Just like the influence of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the people of Herod. Jesus is warning them that if they're going to continue to live in this world, they have to be aware of those who skirt truth and corruption. So Jesus speaks of three main groups. Legalists, the Pharisees, who were the most legalistic bunch you could ever hope to find. Uh, They did not worship God so much as they worshipped religious mysticism and law and showing off. The liberalists, again, we look to Matthew's record, he includes the Sadducees and Jesus' words here, so I will as well. The Sadducees were the liberals of Israel. They denied angels. They denied the resurrection. Anything miraculous, they denied existence of. These are the ones who claim religion, but also deny supernatural. And finally, the secularists. Jesus mentions Herod, but by extension, those are those who follow Herod. These are the ones who are just perfectly happy with the Romans coming in and uh, these people being part of their culture. They want to be part of that world. They want to be of this world. They do not care about God. And we have all these things today. We even have them in the church. That's church, capital C, universal. We all know about the dangers of legalism. Um, I think that's one of the things we have on our minds many, many times. Avoid legalism. This is taking away the liberties of Christianity and replacing them with new requirements, with strict rules. This is incredibly dangerous. It diminishes grace. It diminishes and takes away the glory of Christ on the cross and the amazing price that he paid for our freedom. So avoid legalism. Liberalism is rampant today in America. Big name preachers, well-known men, are coming out saying things like, the virgin birth might not have happened. It's no big deal. Um, The Trinity, maybe, maybe not. Jesus may have only been a man. Hell is not real. Everyone is invited to heaven regardless of what they believe. This is foul. This is the other extreme from legalism. Anything goes theology. Truth is relative to your culture. There is no cosmological truth at all. A theology that denies absolute cosmological truth and accepts all faiths as true is not only absolutely illogical but it denies God and it's very basic core it denies God because God is cosmological truth if you deny absolute truth you deny the existence of your God this is ridiculous and it's illogical and we have men today who are claiming Christ as their savior who are leading hundreds and thousands astray in this way. This is incredibly dangerous. And of course, secularism, always around. This is simply those who deny God, and I think this has the least impact on our church. This is the least threatening. Secularism, these are those that are outside. They're the least dangerous. 
The most dangerous are those who are inside the church. So a word of warning. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, beware the legalists who will diminish the grace of Christ. Beware the liberalists who will diminish truth and certainty. It is from those of us that are within the church that the most danger comes. So it's also a word of warning for all of us. Do not be either of these people. Accept the truth of God for what it is, regardless of how difficult and how sometimes hurtful it feels. The truth of God is good. Don't mess with it. So Jesus had this really simple and really incredibly deep word of teaching for his followers. This is the meat. They're getting off the milk. And his disciples' response, what are we going to have for lunch? They had just been witness to this monumental act, rejecting the religious leaders, and now he's trying to teach them this important thing that's really related, and all they can think about is food. They thought Jesus was talking about literal leaven. They heard the word leaven, and they thought, okay, so I shouldn't eat leavened bread. Big deal. Where's the other bread? This is ridiculous. They are blinded by their own immediate feelings. They're distracted. They're not regarding the important things of God. So Jesus questions them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see? Do you not hear? Are you hardened? Were you not with me last week when I fed 4,000 men and their families? Why are you whining about the fact you have no bread? Just ask me and I'll give you bread. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Then he reminds them, obviously, of the feeding, all the leftovers, These are elementary principles that the disciples should have already understood. Not only should they remember the obvious two big miracles, but they were around for Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things from the Sermon on the Mount are all the basic needs of humanity. All those simple things, food, clothing, water. Jesus is promising, if you seek first God and his things and his way and his will, the rest will be taken care of. The disciples, more than anyone else, should have known that bread is not an issue right now. He would have easily provided it. Instead, they should have been seeking the things of God, which was the teaching of Christ. But Jesus takes this incredibly frustrating moment and teaches them. What he had been trying to teach them was this important principle about dangerous influences. We can say it's a more advanced principle. But seeing that they clearly needed to learn a more basic principle, that God will provide their most basic needs if they seek first him, he gives them a refresher course. Now this reminded me a little bit of when I was in middle school, middle school algebra. I was terrible at middle school algebra. I was useless. I couldn't get it. I couldn't figure it out. And I was just confused all the time. And then finally, a teacher realized, you don't know how to do long division. I didn't know I didn't know how to do long division. (laughs) So she taught me. Day after day, for several weeks, she went back to all the basics of mathematics and taught me. And then by the end of the year, I knew algebra. I didn't know the basics, so I couldn't get the advanced things. Just like here, Jesus brings them back to the basics. He scolds them for being idiots, but 
he brings them back to the basics and he teaches them. And in Matthew's version of this account, it says that they then understood. They then understood. Ah, you weren't talking about bread. Oh, influence. Got it. I understand now. And you're telling me God will provide for me. Now I got it. They, act, they did understand. They're not completely at a loss. Jesus did not leave them to their blindness. These are men who are ignorant, who are distracted, but they're not willfully hardened against the truth, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees who did not want the truth. These men did want it, and so Jesus provided it. The same applies to us today. If we are willfully hardened, we won't learn anything. We will not grow, and we will stay in darkness. But seeking truth, accepting it for truth, even when it hurts our pride and when it means we have to change the way we live, that is good. This will lead to growth and to fulfillment and to joy. Accepting truth when it hurts. So Jesus has dealt with permanent spiritual blindness. He has dealt with temporary spiritual blindness. Now he actually deals with physical, literal blindness. And they came to Bethsaida. This is verses 22 through 26. Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees. Trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. This is a really interesting miracle for a lot of reasons. We don't really have time to talk about it. So I'm going to touch on one point and that is that Jesus touches him. I will also mention... This is not a public miracle. Remember what I said before. Jesus doesn't do any more public miracles in Galilee at all. They bring a man. He probably came to Bethsaida completely quietly, by the way. You'll notice crowds were not around him. And someone found out he was there, and so they brought a man to him. And they asked him to touch him. And he takes him outside of the village to heal him. Jesus' healing is almost always through touch. Jesus is God. He doesn't need to touch them. He even heals one man from a distance. Right? So he doesn't need to touch anyone. It's not required. But he chooses to touch people. These are people who are considered unclean, untouchables. The religious leaders taught that if you had some sort of major malady, if you were deaf, if you were blind, if you had been seriously hurt, lost a leg, anything like that, God had punished you for your sin and you were untouchable you were unclean Jesus touched lepers we wouldn't touch lepers today Jesus touches them when no one else would it's very tender it's very compassionate and he heals them by touching them it's a really really important point to make he's teaching his followers and especially his disciples that these are not people cursed by God they are people in need of great compassion. And obviously there's a lot to say about Jesus' power to heal. Someone who's diseased, that Jesus actually fixes them on a cellular level. There are times when the Greek seems to suggest that people came to him who were maimed. 
arms, legs gone, and he healed them. That means that he grew them new limbs. It's really incredible. Eyes that cannot see. He heals them from the most basic cellular level all the way up to perfection. The scripture here actually says... And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. In the Greek, that's three different words for seeing. And it's see far, see accurately, and see everything. It was perfect vision. When Jesus heals, he heals perfectly. <coughs> Moving quickly. <coughs> Next, oh, I guess I could have given you that. Mark eight twenty-seven through 30. Uh, we will see the peak of the Gospel of Mark, the confession of Peter uh, on behalf of all the disciples that Jesus is the Christ. 8, 27 through 30, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? You've been in uh, teaching for two and a half years. It's exam time. Who am I? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered on behalf of the group, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the peak of the Gospel of Mark. One of the most important moments for the disciples. Everything previously in the Gospel of Mark has led to this confession. Everything, all of his miracles, all of his teaching has led to this point where the disciples say, you are the Christ. And everything from this point on is leading away from it. Everything from this point on is leading directly to Jesus on the cross, fulfilling his role as the Messiah. Now the disciples had already affirmed that Jesus was the Son of God. They did this when he walked on water. He said, truly, you are the Son of God. That was affirming his deity, affirming his person. Now they are affirming his office as the Messiah. The Messiah had an incredibly strong meaning for these men. These Jewish men and that Jewish culture, the Messiah meant bringing about a great kingdom, taking over all the land around them, kicking out the Romans and spreading an empire around the world. And it meant peace and prosperity forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what Messiah was to them. Now, they didn't fully understand. That comes later. Jesus comes back later and puts his kingdom on earth. First, Messiah comes to die as a ransom. They didn't get this. <clears throat> this was a great moment for them. Um, they understand who Jesus was. They affirmed. A lot of commentators will say this is the point where they had true saving faith in Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior, but they're still confused about what was going to happen. But right now, they are making a decision. By this confirmation, they are turning their backs on their religion. The leaders of their religion and of their nation have denied this man. He is an outcast. He's a false prophet to them. So these disciples are denying their religion and their nation and possibly their friends and family. They're making a choice here. And they do so joyfully. But now we see exactly how 
confused they are about the Messiah and the role of the Messiah. 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the first time that Jesus teaches them clearly about what has to happen. And he's speaking clearly, plainly, simply, not in parables. And you'll find every single time he teaches this, they are confused. Four things become apparent if you take all the teachings of Christ about his own death and resurrection. One, Jesus is going to die. Two, his death is intentional. Three, his death is not a suicide. It will be murder. Four, he will rise from the dead in a precise time. The death and the resurrection is by appointment. It is purposeful and it has a purpose. The purpose is not mentioned here. The purpose is found in Mark 10.45, and that is, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus the Messiah would die. He would be murdered. He would be hung on a cross. He would bear the weight of the sins of the world. He would be in agony physically from the execution and spiritually from the weight of the guilt of our sin put upon him. And he would die the death of a sinner, of a guilty man. And he would raise victorious on the third day. It is no accident that Jesus waits until this time to tell them about this because they needed to affirm that they trusted in him because this was impossible to them. This was an oxymoron to them. These people had left everything to follow the Messiah who would establish a kingdom on earth right now. This was ridiculous. The Messiah, the giver of life, die was ridiculous. Messiah, the king of the Jews, would be rejected and killed by them? So Peter, in his ignorance, in his confusion, rebukes his Messiah. And his Messiah rebukes him back. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This thing that Jesus must do is the will of the Father. And it is the way of salvation for all of God's people and the people of the world. Peter is thinking here and now, he's thinking Jesus must rule right now in Israel. He's not thinking of God's will. And Jesus says to him, this is God's way, it is his plan. If you persist in fighting my plan to die, you side with Satan, not God. Satan doesn't want a ransom to be paid. Satan doesn't want to pull people off of the path to hell And if you don't side with Jesus, you are not on God's side. You are on Satan's side. So he's saying this to Peter. And let us not forget that Peter is the one who is telling John Mark about this. But again, Jesus does not abandon Peter to his confusion and to his blindness. He rebukes him for his lack of faith. This is a man who is confused and distracted, not willingfully blind. And Jesus came to ransom the many. Are you ransomed? Are you one of the many? 
Are you a slave to sin and Satan and hopelessness and death, or are you free from bondage? And the next few verses and our final verses are answering that question. Are you ransomed? And calling the crowd to him, verse 34, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? It's rhetorical, by the way. It's nothing. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus calls his disciples, that's disciples, that's a larger group, not just his 12 inner circle, but all of the disciples who have been following him to explain these things. If anyone would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. The ransomed follow after Jesus. That's how you know you are ransomed. The ransomed are compelled toward him and toward his ways. We do not always follow his ways, but we are compelled to them. To us, he is compelling. He is lovely. He is true. He is wonderful. And we follow him. And Jesus goes on in verses 35 through 38 to give a lot more detail. You'll notice each one of these verses, at least if you're looking at the ESV, start with the word for. This is basic argument. This is true. The ransom, follow me. Because, 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 because. Now, the preacher John Piper, who I am plagiarizing at this moment, has a method to bringing light to a passage like this. It's a really fantastic thing that I'd never heard before. So what he does is with, a state, with, with successive statements that begin with four, a basic grammatical argument like this, he flips them around, so he takes all the verses and puts them backwards, and replaces four with therefore. For example, I ate too much for lunch, right? For I was really hungry, because I was really hungry. For I skipped breakfast. For I was running late, or I was running late, therefore I skipped breakfast. Therefore, I was really hungry. Therefore, I ate too much for lunch. Very simple. It's kind of elegant. So, we're going to look at the rest of our passages backwards. We're going to start with 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. What is the opposite of being ashamed? Being proud. Boasting. So, if we are not to be ashamed of Jesus' teaching, we boast in it. For whoever boasts, let him boast in the Lord. <clears throat> that is what the ransomed do. They are proud of Christ. They are proud of what he did and what his words say. They are proud of it. Now he is not talking about our periodic failure to witness boldly. He is talking about a heart, a deep down heart issue. This is a person who thinks the cross is embarrassing. 
The Bible is embarrassing. God is embarrassing. What the Bible says is embarrassing. This is a person who makes excuses for the Bible. This is not someone who has actually accepted salvation, and they are embarrassed by the thought of it. They are faking it. This is a goat. This is someone who says they are a sheep, and they are a goat. They are part of goat culture. You pretend, but you are fake. So this is not, I failed to witness boldly. This is a much deeper issue. And what he is saying here is, if I am not your boast, if your goat culture is your boast, your falsities, your fakeries, if you think I am embarrassing, if you'd rather be part of your goat culture, your darkness, instead of part of my culture, when I come back, I will be embarrassed of you. And I will deny you. Therefore, verse 37, it's a rhetorical question. What can a man give in return for his soul? That is nothing. If you were embarrassed by the ransom, you are not part of the ransom. Your soul, nothing can be given to ransom it because you already said no to the ransom. You can give nothing to redeem that soul. Therefore, verse 37, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? The world cannot save you. You were embarrassed. You rejected the ransom. You denied it. You were ashamed by the very thought of it. You could gain the whole world and you could not ransom your soul now. You were embarrassed by it. Therefore, verse 35, whoever would save his life must lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The way out of that mess is to give it all up for Jesus Christ. So to summarize, so far, what Jesus, what Jesus is saying, being ashamed, embarrassed of me and my ransom means you're not part of the ransom. You have not accepted it. You have rejected it and you are cut off from me. Therefore, no ransom is possible what can you give? Nothing. Not even if you had the whole world at your disposal could you ransom your soul. Therefore, you will have your life forever if you treasure Jesus enough to lose your life for him. And finally, verse 34, so if you would come after him, after Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. In other words, treasure Jesus Christ more than you treasure your comfort, more than you treasure your safety, your dignity, your pride, your family, your job, your car, your house, or anything else on this earth. You treasure Jesus Christ more than anything. That means that you will be embarrassed publicly. You will be shamed. You will lose friends for Christ because you treasure him more than you treasure yourself. You would die for the gospel. That's what he's saying here. Be willing to die for Jesus Christ, for the gospel. That is martyrdom. What is the opposite of self-denial? The idol of self-gratification. And what is the opposite of cross-bearing? It is the idol of self-preservation. Be willing to lose your life. Be like Paul, Philippians 3.8. I count everything as loss, as scum, as trash to be thrown away. Everything as loss 
for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Everything else, comparatively, is garbage. This is so easy. It should be. This is denying sand filled with bird droppings to take gold instead. This is denying sewage water to drink from a mountain stream. This should be so easy. And it is costly. It's an easy choice, and it's a costly choice. It costs our Lord and Savior his life, and it costs us our dignity, our comfort, the things that make us happy. It costs our entertainment. It can cost us friends. And he is so worth it. Deny the sand and the filth of this world. Deny it and accept Jesus Christ. If you have not already accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, now's the time. Say no to the muck and the filth of this world and say yes to Jesus Christ, the glory, the gold. And if you have accepted this, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. The road is hard. It's the road of self-denial. It's cross-bearing and it's willingness to die and it's worth it. Conclusion. We're already over time. Jesus our God is compassionate and he will provide when you seek God first. Spiritual blindness comes from ignorance, hardening of your heart, and a willful disregard of truth. But Jesus has offered you truth and light. Will you take it? This is for believers and non-believers. We struggle with this too. We like to put ourselves in darkness and we enjoy it. If this is you, if you are in a, a place where you love your sin, You've been convicted, but you're saying no. You're saying next week I'll fix it. Next week I'll fix it. Next week. Snap out of it. This is stupid. If God is convicting you and you're saying no, this is stupid. Just stop. If your God is saying it's time to change, then it's time to change. Snap out of it. It is time to pick up your cross, deny yourself, And let's follow our Lord as a church. You are an ambassador of the most holy God of this world, so let's act like it. We're citizens of heaven. We are children of God. Let's start acting like it today. The central fact of history is that Jesus Christ, the divine, the God, the man, came to earth not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Are you one of the ransomed? Are you willing to act like one of the ransomed? To die for what you believe? Are you proud of him? Do you boast in him? Or are you embarrassed? Do you make excuses for the truth? Or are you proud of it? Today is the day to change. Choose the hard road. Choose the road of self-denial because it's completely and totally worth it. It is fulfilling. It is joyful. It is good. And there is peace and rest. And when you come before your Father in heaven, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then that's eternity. And this is just a blink of an eye. It's worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a lot of information, a lot of text. Um, Lord, I believe that you 
um, have spoken to us today, and I just pray that you would help us to, uh, every one of us, to just listen and be convicted, uh, not be hardened against your truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen.